<clears throat> still in Revelation chapter 3, we're going to revisit the church of Philadelphia. I realize that I'm running the risk of spoiling you by dividing this letter up to two short sermons. Just uh, consider it a blessing and don't, uh, there are no promises attached to it. <laughs> Philadelphia. It is very similar to the church of Smyrna in that, and you can see this on the screen, both received no blame from the Lord, only praise. Both suffered from group, a group in the church who called themselves Jewish, but were in reality against God's plan to reveal himself through Messiah. Both were persecuted, it would seem, by the Romans, both were assured that the opposition they were experiencing was coming from, ultimately, from Satan. And both are promised a crown. The Church of Philadelphia, as the text reminds us, is, was strongly representative of converted Jews. They knew and they felt the reality of being the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures by being New Covenant Jewish believers. To them, Christianity was the inner reality of everything that the Old Testament foretold through history. And yet, when Rome came and destroyed Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD, this group of Jewish Christians no doubt struggles with their place of fulfillment in the promises of God. And that is why throughout the letter you have very Jewish language. Did you all know that Revelation doesn't exist to teach us chronology of end time events? Revelation exists to encourage the heart of Jewish readers to persevere until Jesus comes. And so throughout the book you have very Jewish language. And in this letter also, for instance, the key of David, which we talked about last week. The synagogue of Satan, God, uh, Jesus says these Jewish people are. He speaks of a pillar in the temple of my God, the name of the city of my God, the New Jerusalem. Those are things we're going to unpack today. And we saw last week that Jesus revealed himself to them as he who is holy, he who is true. He is reminding this faithful church of his nature of faithfulness. He's holy and true. He has the key of David. He has authority. When Jesus has the key, nobody locks up. <laughs> and if he locks up, nobody opens. He is in absolute authority. He, say, he even says that. Who opens and no one shuts, shuts and no one opens. His reign is unchallenged over all things. And if you believe that, can I hear an amen right there? He is reigning unchallenged challenged. Regardless of what's going on in the world, regardless of what the political people are saying, regardless of what you feel in your heart about your situation, Jesus reigns, and he's reigning in full authority and unchallenged. I love that truth. So this week, we begin with the promise. He, he oh, I forgot this point. Glad it showed up on the screen. He commends them for four things. This is a good church. There's, they've got all this going for them. They live in harmony with Christ's sovereignty. What does he say? I know your works. See, I have set before you an open 
door and no one can shut it. He is, they are living in light of his rule over them. They are speaking the truth to the gospel, of the gospel to people around them. They, they are a small, inconsequential congregation to the city of Philadelphia because Jesus says, you have a little strength. And yet, he commends them for that, which causes us to think that they are evaluating by faith, not by the way things look. They are clinging to God's word. When things around them seem to be crumble, he says to them, you have kept my word, the ending of verse 8 there, and have not denied my name. The reputation of Jesus is important to these people. That is what holds them in check. We would do well to keep to their example. Because if we can remember that the way we behave, the way people hear us reflects on the one that we say we know, it would actually change the way that we behave in the world. And then we get to this promise. He says, because you have kept my command to persevere. That actually reaches back to all he just talked about, all the faithfulness, those four points we saw. You've kept my command to persevere, therefore, here's the promise. You ready for this? I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which, is, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. This is divine protection. Jesus is going to protect this church because they have been faithful to him. He says, I will keep you. Who's the you? Well, certainly Philadelphia, the faithful church. And by application, it is all his faithful people. Now, I want you to notice something about the text you see. Do you see that the hour of trial? Do you see the definite article there? This sets this apart, and of course, the, the descriptive phrases do as well, which shall come upon how much of the earth? I'm talking to you now. How much of the earth? The whole earth. And what's the purpose? To test those who dwell on the earth. So this is a worldwide trial. It is distinct from every other season of trial that planet earth has experienced throughout its history. There's something coming that's distinct in its scope. And Jesus says, what else is distinct is that I'm going to protect you from it. Now, you don't get a lot of chronological hints in the book of Revelation. There just aren't many there. Some people try to force a square peg into a round hole and make it that way, but it's just simply not there. However, with that said, here's a clue. Here's a clue. Because he says, because you have kept my command to persevere, I will keep you from the hour of trial, which is to test the whole world. Here's the faithful church being exempt from this trial. Why do we say that? Because the trial has a purpose. Remember, I told you, this is very uh, important to follow here, uh, and I'm going to help you with the screen, but just give me all the attention you have for just a moment. Revelation is a very Jewish book. It exists to encourage the heart of Jewish people to be faithful to the Messiah until he comes. We are spiritual Israel, true, we're, because we're, we're one with all who have believed. But we've got to keep the context of Revelation where God intended for it to be. It is written for Jewish people primarily. And this event is for Jewish people so that they will recognize 
who their Messiah is. You've got Romans 9, 10, and 11 that speaks of God taking the nation of Israel and setting them aside so that their disobedience would result in the, the gospel going to, to Gentiles. And by the way, can I just... Is anybody glad about that? That the gospel has come to us? I'm not glad that they were disobedient, but I am glad that God did something sovereignly and majestic and wonderful and gracious to bring the gospel to us because of that. And so Romans tells us, Paul says, that he set them aside temporarily, but someday he's going to bring them back in. And as a nation, they will recognize that Jesus is the Messiah. And now I want to take you to some prophetic words. Jeremiah 30, verse 7 says this, Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. Remember, it's going to be greater in scope than anything the world has ever experienced before. And it is the time, what does it say there? The time of Jacob's trouble. That time is designed for Israel to help them see that Jesus is the Messiah, but he shall be saved out of it. In the book of Daniel, we have similar, a similar concept. At that time, Michael shall stand up. Michael is the archangel, that great prince who stands, over, stands watch over who? Read it. The sons of your people. That's right. Who's it designed for? Israel. That great prince who, who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. Greater in scope than anything planet Earth has ever seen before. Who's it designed for? Israel. And at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book of life. What is that teaching us? It's teaching us that some in Israel will recognize that Jesus is the Messiah and they will be delivered. Now, Matthew 24, Jesus uh, unpacks. In fact, the, the whole chapter is wonderful, but he unpacks this thing very detailed and he says this uh, in this excerpt here. For then there will be great tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be and unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Now, I, I share those passages with you to let you know that what Revelation states, what Jesus states to the, Philipp, to the, to the Philadelphian church here, is not an isolated promise. It is something that Scripture points to in its fullness. And so the tribulation period, in the humble opinion of this student, is an hour of trial designed for Jacob, for Israel, so that they will recognize who Messiah is. Now, if, going back to the Church of Philadelphia, if they understand that disaster for the world is imminent, wisdom would dictate that they be prepared as possible, and which is why he goes to the admonition, admonition which says, Behold, I am coming quickly, Hold fast what you have. This is Jesus telling them to be alert. To be alert. And as an admonition, it is both an encouragement regarding their faithfulness and an admonition to remain faithful. Others may be caught off guard, but you should not be. You should maintain, he's saying to this church, maintain this heading without compromise. Don't divert your attention away from me, Jesus says. 
They need to grasp firmly. He says, hold fast what you have. Grasp it firmly. What you know about Christ. How to live in a righteous readiness for his imminent return. And by the way, speak of Jesus to those around you because there are some who say they're Jews but are not who need to be converted. Did you know that the people who are the, who are the meanest people in your life need Jesus? <laughs> some of you work with people who you don't particularly like. I get that. So does God. But you know why they act the way they do? Because they need Christ. They need Christ. And by the way, do you know why God sovereignly Rubs your shoulders up against theirs because you have the light in you. Yeah, so don't turn away from that. Hold fast what you have. I'm coming, he says, and also be guarded. Be guarded that no one may take your crown. Now, what in the world does this mean? Well, first of all, the obvious. The wording suggests that you actually can lose the crown, right? Doesn't that, isn't that what the wording suggests? Be Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. So it begs some questions here. If they're faithful, why are they being warned? <laughs> and the other question to me is, what's the warning mean to lose your crown? So we're going to answer those questions. Here's why a faithful church needs a warning. Are you ready for this? Because faithfulness can be stolen. It can be stolen by toxic behavior or by wrong choices or by unbelief. Just because you're faithful today doesn't mean you're going to be faithful next week. You must be on guard that what you have isn't stolen. What does the warning mean? What did Jesus say? What is he saying when he says that no one may take your crown? The text has to be our authority. We're not going to make this up. We're going to let the text speak for itself. What is a crown? A crown is the Greek word stephanos. It means it's, it was a symbol of victory. And Jesus here, he says, you have a crown. You have a symbol of victory already. He says, and the wording here, let, that no one may take your crown. Do you hear that they already have it? They're already in possession of it. So it's not something that's future, it's something they have right now, and there's a danger of losing it. So what do they have? Well, we saw that already. We, we, we saw that, that there is a daily propensity on their part to live in submission to Christ's headship. There is, there is an evaluation by faith and not by the way things look. They cling to God's word and they are concerned for the reputation of Christ. This is their crown. This is what the text says that they're doing right. And this is what Jesus says, don't let anybody take that away from you. So the losing of the crown would be the loss of of the vitality of a relationship with Jesus Christ. Listen, you know people like that. You know people who once walked with God but don't anymore. You know people who, who, who may have even led you to Christ or influenced you significantly but are no longer significant followers of Jesus. I know people like that. Listen, Jesus said, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. It can happen. And if you think it can happen to you, then, then brother or sister, you're a prime candidate. It can happen. And so Jesus says, he who overcomes, 
overcomes what? <laughs> well, let's follow what he's already talked about. He overcomes their, uh, their, their, their crown is their faithfulness. These four things we talked about, living in submission, living by faith, clinging to God's word, guarding Christ's reputation. If you lose that, then it is not living in submission to Christ, living any old way, not living by faith, evaluating by sight, by the way things look, getting all discouraged down in the mouth because of the way things look, forgetting that God actually has revealed not only what we need today, but that he is moving this entire universe toward his determined end. And losing the crown means that we're not guarding his reputation. We're just living any old way. My behavior is just my behavior. Leave me alone. I can do whatever I want. Wrong. We reflect on Christ. And so he says, he who overcomes. Overcomes what? Overcomes the tendency to discard these things or to lose them. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the new name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my New name. Did you, call, did you catch all of the pronouns that Jesus says there in that verse? The first thing I want to draw to your attention is that the reward is based on the nature and person of Christ himself. Eight times he says, this is me, this is what I'm doing. And in that he says that to this church he will give them strength and stability. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Well, what's a pillar for? It's for strength and stability. Now, remember who the people are. They're a people with only a little strength. They are without social influence or prestige. They are displaced as a result of what happened in Jerusalem in 70 A.D. when Rome came down and leveled Jerusalem and the temple. And so the promise to them is because of their faithfulness that they will be strong and stable for eternity. Yeah, you've experienced this reality, but this is what's coming. And that they themselves will be part of God's eternal dwelling. Secondly, belonging. Again, the pronouns. There are five times Jesus uses the word my. My God, he says four times, and my new name. This suggests to me, as I've tried to unpack this, that Christ is enjoying oneness with God, and so will we. He is in submission to the Father. There's a oneness there in that submission, and that is what he's promising to us to. Belonging. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. You, this is where I am, and that's where you're coming as well. This is very similar to Hebrews 2.11, which says, He who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. You see, belongingness is also seen in the phrase, And he shall go out no more. The faithful one belongs to Jesus Christ, and he belongs where Christ is. Remember, the promises look toward the future. He also says that I will write on him my 
new name. And this is, this is that concept of intimacy with God that we've already seen in the letters to the churches already. Think about it in the context of Philadelphia. They are a people who are ostracized for their faith and their identification with Christ. To them, Jesus promises them a nearness to their God, His eternal presence, His unhindered and His unrestrained intimacy with His people. Can you just imagine that for a second? You know, one of the things I look forward to, and in, in, I don't look forward to dying. The dying part really is not cool to me. But being in heaven, the one, the one thing I really look forward to is that first second, when I take a breath in heaven that I'm no longer dealing with this sinful flesh. Can anybody relate? I mean, can you just think of that for just a moment? That there were no more of this? That'll be awesome, won't it? These are the similar concepts that Jesus is trying to communicate. I will write on him my new name. There is going to be a closeness with God like you've never imagined before. And look what, we see this elsewhere in Revelation in chapter 2 verse 17. There's a hidden manna spoken of. There's a, a white stone, which we've already talked about these things. There's a new name in chapter 22. We'll see his face. His name shall be written on our foreheads. These are all concepts that communicate that God wants intimacy with people. We are His highest creation. We are in His image, and we've fallen because of sin, and we, we feel that every day. You feel it right now, don't you? <laughs> You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. We feel it. But God says, there's something way different coming, and it's, this is what I give to those who overcome. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that an awesome hope? Which leads me to my final point, brothers and sisters. A focus on heaven will yield faithfulness on earth. Would you say that with me? A focus on heaven will yield faithfulness on earth. The heavenly reward is sufficient to motivate earthly perseverance. Whether it is or not in you right now is a commentary on the state of your heart. But this is a true statement. A focus on heaven will yield a faithfulness on earth. And that's why he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Anybody in the room discouraged this morning as to where you are in your faith? I mean, really disappointed at your level of obedience. You don't have to raise your hand right now. If this is, this is, this is, I want you looking at me, but I want you evaluating privately. I want you to think about the four points that we saw in their faithfulness. That that they lived in submission to the Lordship of Christ, that they evaluated by faith and not by the way things look, that they clung to the Word of God, and that they guarded that Christ's reputation, how my li their lives reflected on Him was first and foremost on their minds. If you are discouraged, if you are struggling with your own faithfulness this morning, look at those four points and see where you need the Lord's healing hand. Because his, his hand is the only one who can heal us. You know, we can try to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, but that only works for a few minutes. <laughs> we need his hand, don't we? It is his resurrection power that will realign our hearts. And remember, brothers and sisters, that our faithfulness as a church, this letter is written to the church of Philadelphia. 
Jesus is calling us to listen as individuals. Our faithfulness as a church is directly proportionate to the faithfulness of the individuals in the church. And so, if there's an area of compromise, can I just say as your older brother in Christ, you should let that go. If you're compromising somehow, whether it's moral, whether it's it, it, wherever it is, just let it go. Let it go. And get help. There are people in this congregation who love you, who will take care of you, who will help you, but don't stay in the dark any longer. Bringing it into the light does two things. First of all, it brings it in front of Jesus, who is the light, right? And it'll, I'll tell you something else it'll do, that, that when you're in sin, you don't think of this because sin is very deceptive, and so is your heart. But bringing it into the light, being honest, and, and, and confessing that to the Lord and to some, possibly to somebody else who, whom you need help from, will take the teeth out of it. It'll take Satan's teeth out of it because he's the great accuser, isn't he? You know, he's the one that says, look at that, look at that. And then you look and you go, look at you looking at that. He accuses all the time. He's always got something. He stands in front of God and accuses you. Yeah, that, yeah they're a follow, they say they're a follower of Jesus, but look how they just acted. And you know what happens? You know what the Bible says? That Jesus stands there as your intercessor and he prays for you. What's he praying? For your faithfulness. So, if there's an area of compromise, bring it into the light. It's where it belongs anyway as children of light, right? And it also takes the teeth out of it for Satan's accusations. Let me ask the question a different way. Is there anything that's stealing your crown this morning? Anything that's stealing your vitality, your intimacy with Christ? That needs to be confessed. And it needs the touch of Jesus. Would you pray with me? Lord, you say in your word that in thy presence is fullness of joy. We want to cling to that, Lord. Knowing what this letter says to this church and to us, we cling willingly as an act of our will. We let go of the things that are stealing our vitality. And we cling to you, Lord, the one who has offered us yourself, your intimate, vital, fresh, relationship with you. Lord, help us not to be satisfied with lesser things. Help us not to eat seaweed soup when the great feast of the Lamb is awaiting us. Lord, help us to keep our minds and our hearts focused on the eternal reward of your very presence. In thy presence is fullness of joy. Lord, would you touch my brothers and sisters, whatever the need, whatever, wherever you, your spirit has shown your holy light this morning, would you touch them in Jesus' name.